The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts, and today the next passage we come to is Acts 27, 1 through 28, 10. So I'll be reading a selection of the verses from that passage. It says, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out from sea to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God, to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The centurion ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all. But it had begun to rain and was cold, When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened it on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice had not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. 
They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Linda. Let's pray together. Father, we find it written that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So help us to view your word that way this morning, not merely as an interesting subject for study or as a helpful resource for various situations, but rather as our very life. May we experience it as that, through the ministry of your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Horatio Spafford was a prominent lawyer and actually a senior partner in a prestigious Chicago law firm in the 1800s. He was also a highly successful real estate investor in the northern section of Chicago, He had a wife named Anna and five children. He also happened to be a devout Christian and a personal friend and financial supporter of the famous evangelist D.L. Moody. So this was a man who basically had everything going for him. That is, until a series of tragic events turned his life upside down. In 1870, Horatio lost his only son, Horatio Jr., to scarlet fever at the tender age of just four years old. Then less than a year later, the Great Fire of Chicago destroyed nearly all of his real estate investments. So a vast portion of his life savings was gone in a matter of hours. Then about two years after that, the Spaffords decided to take an extended vacation to England. However, Horatio ended up being delayed by a couple of weeks uh, by some uh, business obligations, so he decided to send the rest of the family on ahead of them, uh, of him, and then catch up with them after they got there. But his wife, Anna, and their four daughters, uh, as they were on the ship that was taking them across the Atlantic to England, their ship collided with another ship and sank in just 12 minutes. Anna managed to survive, but the four daughters did not. Horatio learned the devastating news from a telegram that Anna sent him shortly after the tragic event from England. It simply read, saved alone. Immediately upon receiving the telegram, Horatio began his journey to England in order to grieve with his wife 
And as he passed over the part of the ocean where his four daughters had drowned, he went to his cabin and penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now, maybe you've never gone through anything quite like what Horatio Spafford went through, but that doesn't mean there aren't times in your life where you feel overwhelmed by your circumstances. Uh, Maybe it's a health issue or a difficult financial situation or turmoil in the family or, like Horatio, the passing of a loved one. Or maybe simply a season of depression that has no obvious explanation. So there are many different storms and trials that we can face in our lives. And so how, in the midst of those things, can we say, as Horatio Spafford did, it is well with my soul? How is it possible to have that kind of inward peace? even in the midst of the storms of life that are raging all around us? I believe the answer is found in our main scripture passage of Acts 27, 1 through 28, 10. We're able to have that peace to the degree that we view all of our circumstances in light of something called God's providence. And that's the main idea of this entire passage. God wants us to view all of our circumstances in light of his providence. Now, providence is a theological term that doesn't uh, specifically occur in the Bible, like not that exact word, but the concept is certainly taught throughout the Bible. Perhaps the best way of defining it is in the words of Paul in Ephesians 1.11, where he states that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Again, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That means he's intimately involved in all of our circumstances, working in them all and through them all to accomplish his perfect purposes. So when you think about it, there's actually no such thing as luck. When we talk about good luck or bad luck, there's actually no such thing. There's simply God's providence as he works through every detail of every event in accordance with his will. And also, for all of you systematic theology buffs out there, uh, notice that this idea of providence goes beyond sovereignty. God's sovereignty simply means that he rules over our circumstances, while providence means he not only rules over the circumstances, but it's also purposeful within them. He's actually doing something. He's accomplishing his purposes. And it's absolutely critical for us to remember that truth of God's providence in the midst of the storms and trials of our lives, just like we see the Apostle Paul doing in our main passage of Scripture. In fact, we might say that in this passage, Paul's facing a storm within a storm. Um, He's facing a figurative storm in that he's been falsely accused of certain crimes and 
unjustly arrested and taken into custody. That's been his situation for several chapters now. And now in this particular passage, he finds himself in the midst of a literal storm within that figurative storm. And isn't that how it feels in our lives sometimes? (laughs) A storm on top of a storm, maybe even on top of another storm. Yet as we walk through this passage, we're going to see four principles related to God's providence that are critical for us to remember in the midst of these storms in our lives. First, God has to bring us to the end of ourselves before we'll learn to trust in Him. God has to bring us to the end of ourselves before we'll learn to trust in Him. At the beginning of Acts 27 records the start of Paul's journey by sea from Caesarea to Rome. Uh, He's placed in the custody of a Roman military official known as a centurion, who was called that because he was over 100 soldiers. Yet Paul's also allowed to travel with two of his friends, uh, Luke, who's actually writing this narrative, and a guy named Aristarchus, who's mentioned in verse 2. Eventually, in verse 8, after completing the initial leg of their journey, uh, they find themselves in a coastal town on the island of Crete called Fair Havens. Now, scholars tell us that by this point in the year, travel by sea was beginning to get pretty dangerous. Uh, Verse 9 tells us that the fast, also known as the the Day of Atonement, a Jewish fast, had already passed, uh, meaning that it was well into October, which was well past the season when travel by sea was generally recommended. And so Paul, being the experienced traveler that he is, warns the centurion against going any further and instead recommends that they stay right where they are for the winter in in that town of Fair Havens. Yet instead of listening to Paul, the centurion uh, understandably listens to the captain of the ship who was under the centurion's command because it was an imperial vessel. And he decides instead to try his luck, and I said luck, but to in his mind to try his luck and uh, to make it instead to... Uh, the town of Phoenix, which is about 40 miles away. It's a risky decision, but as we see, things don't go well at all. Look at verses 14 through 20. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running, uh, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. So they're getting desperate. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And it's that statement right there at the end of verse 20 that I'd like to draw your attention to. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They were at rock bottom. And that's what's necessary in order for us to learn to trust in God. 
In order to start trusting in God's strength, we have to come to the end of our own strength. We might say that God has to break us down before he can build us up. You see, as long as we're able to continue relying on our own strength, we will. It's only when that's no longer a viable option that we learn to start relying on God. And so God, in his providence, will graciously allow circumstances to come into our lives that position us to trust in him rather than in ourselves. As Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians 1.9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely. Notice the purpose statement. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Now, just like a blacksmith has to heat the metal he's working on to a certain temperature in order to make it malleable so that he can then craft it into the shape he wants it to be. No, God has to heat us up in the furnace of affliction so that we'll be malleable and he can shape us into what he wants us to be and teach us to rely on him. Then a second principle God gives is that God gives us promises as anchors for our soul. In the midst of the storms that God providentially allows to come into our lives, he gives us promises as anchors for our soul. We see an example of this in verses 21 through 25. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. So in other words... I told you so, right? Gotta love that, though. I imagine the people in the ship probably didn't since they had not eaten in a few days and might have been a little hangry. I don't know. But nevertheless, Paul continues, yet I urge you, I now urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar." And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. So Paul shares with everyone on board the ship that an angel of God appeared to him to remind him both of a promise made before that he would stand before Caesar and also to make another promise that everyone on the ship would survive. Paul then expresses total confidence that God's going to come through on these promises he's made. Again, verse 25, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. Likewise, we also, dear friends, can have total confidence that God is going to come through on every promise he makes, no matter how long ago that promise was made. You know, at this point in the narrative of Acts, it had been over two years since God had promised uh, back in Acts 23, 11, uh, that Paul would stand before Caesar. Yet, as we see from the angel's visit, 
the fulfillment of that promise was just as certain as it had ever been. And that promise served as Paul's anchor in the midst of the storm. The ship may have been assaulted by waves and tossed to and fro by the violent winds of the storm, but Paul was at peace because he was anchored by the promises of God. The ship might not have been anchored, but Paul was because he had God's promises. So just think about the promises that God makes for us today. In fact, fact, it might be a good idea for you to go home this afternoon and make a list of some of the promises of God that you find especially meaningful. I think of Romans 8.28, for example. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Or Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Talking about the material things that we need to survive. Also, Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or how about Revelation 21.4, talking about the new creation, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, how precious are these promises that God has given to us? Each one of these promises, plus many others, is like an anchor for our soul in the midst of the storms in life that rage all around us. Then a third principle related to God's providence that we find in our passage is that God decrees both ends and means. God decrees both ends and means. And means. In other words, his plan includes not only final outcomes, but also the ways in which those outcomes will be accomplished. Um, I'm not typically big on cheesy Christian jokes, but there is one I heard that I believe illustrates this principle quite well. So, well, I'll, I'll share it with you. One time there was this guy who was standing on uh, the the rooftop of his house because he was in the midst of a flood. And he was praying to God for help. So before long, a man in a rowboat came by and shouted to the guy on the rooftop, hey, jump in and I'll rescue you. But the man stranded on his rooftop, shouted back, no, thank you. It's all right. I'm praying to God and I have faith. He's going to rescue me. So the rowboat went on. Then a guy in a motorboat came by, and the guy said to the man stranded on the roof, hey, jump into this boat, I'll rescue you. Well, again, the guy on the rooftop said, no thanks, I'm praying to God, and I have faith, he's going to rescue me. So the motorboat went on. And then a helicopter 
came by and uh, threw a rope out to the guy, and he said, grab onto this rope, and I'll pull you up. But of course, the guy on the rooftop shouted back, no thanks, I'm praying to God, and I have faith he's going to rescue me. So the helicopter reluctantly flew away. Now, soon after that, the water level rose, and the guy on the rooftop ended up drowning. Now, fortunately, he went to heaven and finally got a chance to discuss this whole situation with God. And he asked God why God didn't rescue him from the flood. Yet God replied, well, I sent you a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter. What more did you expect? Now, again, I know it's a little bit cheesy, but hopefully it's cheesy enough to stick in your mind and uh, help us better understand this concept of God working through certain means to accomplish his ends. We can see this at several points in our main text as well. Uh, In the subsequent verses of chapter 27, we uh, read about the crew of the ship discovering through measurements they take that the water is getting increasingly shallow, indicating that they're approaching uh, land and also arousing significant concern that the ship will be dashed against the rocks. And so in the middle of the night, the crew tries to sneak away from the ship in a dinghy boat while everybody else is sleeping. Yet before they can do that, Paul says to the centurion and soldiers in verse 31, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now think about that. we, We just saw that God had promised that everyone on the ship would survive. Yet we see here that that promise was actually conditional on having the crew on board the ship. No doubt their skills would be greatly needed the next day when it came to helping everyone swim for shore and and make it to shore safely. And so God decreed not only the end that everyone would survive, but also the means by which that end would be accomplished by having the ship's crew on board to help everyone make it to shore. The same concept also comes up several other times in the narrative, such as earlier in the chapter, in verses 18 and 19, where they toss overboard the supplies and tackle from the ship in order to make the ship lighter. That was a prudent and necessary step for them to take in order to keep the ship from sinking. We also see, in verses 33 through 38, Paul urging everyone on the ship to eat the remaining food on board in order to strengthen themselves for their laborious swim to shore the next day. So the practical takeaway for us is don't expect God to bless your foolish decisions. Don't expect God to heal you of your health ailments if you're not taking care of your body. Don't expect God to provide you uh, for you financially if you're not working hard, if you're able to work, or uh, at least budgeting and spending your money wisely. Don't expect God to give you a happy marriage if you're being selfish or negligent toward your spouse. And don't expect God to save the people you care about if you're not actively praying for them and seeking to share the gospel with them. So yes, the Bible teaches that God in his providence is sovereignly working to accomplish his purposes. 
But the way in which he accomplishes his purposes is through various means, such as our diligence and obedience. And when you don't avail yourself of the means God's provided and, and through which he accomplishes his ends, well, any expectation of God helping or rescuing you isn't faith, but rather presumption. True biblical faith involves diligently utilizing the means God has provided. And then a final principle we see in this passage is that God has a purpose for every trial. God has a purpose for every trial. Throughout the passage, we see God using the tumultuous events that are recorded in order to make it clear to everyone that his hand is on Paul in a unique way, and thereby to give Paul a platform for gospel ministry. I mean, think about it. God could have allowed them to have a totally uneventful trip from Caesarea to Rome, and I'm sure Paul would have done the best he can to, uh, to be a faithful witness. But how much more of a platform does Paul have to share Jesus with the people around him because of the events that transpired? I mean, think about the opportunity those events give him to be influential among the soldiers guarding him, among the crew, among the other people on the ship, and especially, as we're about to see, among the inhabitants of the island where they wash ashore. God is working through all the seeming chaos to accomplish his purposes among all of those people. We see this especially, as I mentioned, with the islanders. Just to summarize the, the, passage, the rest of the passage briefly, they do en indeed end up crashing against a, a reef a little way from shore. But just as God had promised, every single one of the 276 people on board that ship make it safely to the shore. Then in chapter 28, we learn that they've made it to a small island called Malta, and um, it says the natives on the island show them unusual kindness and actually start a fire so that they can get warm. We then read in verses 3 through 6, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. <laughs> Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited for a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So notice how God's already giving Paul a platform for influence and future ministry among the islanders. And God gives him even more of a platform in verses 7 through 10. And now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happens that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured, they also honored us greatly 
And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So Paul heals everybody on the island, pretty much. Uh, even uh, Chief Publius's father. With the result that the islanders supply them with all the provisions they need. And even though it doesn't specifically say this in the passage, I think we can be reasonably certain that Paul made good use of this platform for ministry that God gave him and faithfully shared the gospel with these islanders. Um, in fact, according to tradition, this was the beginning of the church on the island of Malta with none other than Chief Publius as the church's first pastor. Now, of course, we don't have definitive proof that that tradition's accurate, but at the very least, it's certainly not difficult to imagine the massive spiritual impact that Paul must have had. So as you can see, God was providentially working through everything that's recorded in this entire passage in order to accomplish his perfect purposes and draw people to himself. He's not just sovereign over these circumstances, but also purposeful within them. And guess what? It's the same in our lives as well. Every trial that we experience has a purpose and is exactly what we need at that moment in time. You know, God functions in a manner that's similar in some ways to a physical therapist. If you've ever been through physical therapy before, then you know it's not exactly an enjoyable experience or a very comfortable one. And yet, every single exercise that the physical therapist has you do is exactly what you need in order to recover. That therapist isn't being sadistic by inflicting pointless pain on you for their own enjoyment, even though it might seem like that at times, but is actually helping you get better. Similarly, with the trials God allows us to go through in our lives, God has a purpose for each one of them. And each one is tailor-made for us. It's exactly what we need. God's accomplishing his purposes both within us and, as we see in Acts 27 and 28, through us in the lives of others. And truth be told, guys, he's accomplishing things that quite often we can't even imagine. As John Piper observes, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might be aware of three of them. He's working. And those purposes all come back to the central purpose that God has within this world, which is to get worshipers for himself. That's what it all comes back to. All of the events and occurrences in this entire universe are, are like the spokes of a wheel that all come back to that central hub of God glorifying his name by getting worshipers for himself. And the central and decisive way in which God's acted to accomplish that purpose is by sending his son Jesus to redeem us from our sins. You see, the Bible teaches 
that we've sinned against God and that our sins deserve God's judgment. And not only that, but according to Scripture, we're actually not just guilty of committing sins, but also enslaved by a sinful nature. So we can't worship God because we're enslaved by sin. But God, in his unfathomable mercy, he didn't leave us in that wretched condition, but he sent us a Savior in the person of Jesus to to come as a, a human being and die on the cross to pay for our sins. Like Jesus died in our place to suffer the punishment that we deserve. Then after his death and subsequent resurrection, he's now able to save everyone who will come to him. Through his death, through his resurrection, Jesus redeemed us from both the guilt and the power of our sin so that we're able to have a relationship with God and spend the rest of our lives, really the rest of eternity, worshiping him and enjoying his presence. So it's through Jesus that God has worked decisively to accomplish his purpose in this world of redeeming worshipers for himself. Yet, as you'll remember, God decrees not only the ends, but also the means by which those ends will be accomplished. And so in order to experience the rescue and redemption that God offers, we have to turn from our sins in repentance and put our trust in Jesus alone for that rescue. And if you haven't done that yet, God invites you to to do that. Even today, that is the most important decision that you could ever make. In fact, for those who haven't yet put their trust in Jesus, I believe there's biblical warrant for you to interpret all of the trials and difficulties you face in your life as a merciful wake-up call from God, meant to rouse you from your spiritual slumber and alert you to the desperate situation that you're in spiritually. You know, C.S. Lewis says that pain is like God's megaphone that he uses to get our attention and draw us to himself. So whatever painful or difficult circumstances come your way, I suggest viewing those as an opportunity for you to put your trust in Jesus to do for you what you could never do for yourself and to rescue you from your sin. God's speaking to you through his megaphone and calling you to himself. Will you listen? to what he said.